30 on the dot. We are going to get started. Thank you. It's good to be here. Feel well. Hopefully everybody got enough to eat. If not, after we're done, feel free to come up and grab some seconds. Uh, so before we start, I want to let you know, you guys know about a cool fundraiser that I'm doing right now, like a little contest. Uh, if you follow my website or blog, you know that one of the ways that I fund the ministry is through my artwork. And I also try to fund a number or help fund a number of other organizations that are doing really awesome things. So uh, over the years, one of my friends, he's actually, he was a fighter in the UFC, a big heavyweight fighter, about 265 pounds. He became a Christian after being a drug addict and, uh, you know, did the prescription drugs, alcoholic, just had a ridiculously crazy life, professional cage fighter, became a Christian, went, lived in Africa for a year with a mission friend, and got adopted by uh, one of the pygmy tribes, the Mabuti pygmy tribes in the Congo, in Africa. And he fell in love with them. Uh, the pygmies, they, they're small jungle people, they live they're about four foot seven average height, and they live off of the land, and they're enslaved by local tribes all throughout the Congo. And they're treated horribly. Like sometimes they're even eaten because they're seen as half human, half animals. So he fell in love with this, uh, the pygmy tribes, and they adopted him, and he stayed and lived with them for a year. They live in little grass huts that they make and sleep on the ground, and uh, they work all day, 16 hours a day, and for payment they get like two pieces of corn or a minnow or something to, to live off of, so they'll have to come back and keep working. So anyway, long story short, he started an organization called Fight for the Forgotten, because the pygmies call themselves the forgotten people because they feel like the world is just forgotten. And so he started an organization, Fight for the Forgotten, that basically goes over, secures, legally secures land in the rainforest for them uh, in the Congo, in the tribe's name, so they don't have to work for other people whose land they're living on anymore, have their own land, and then they go and drill water wells so they can have clean water because 5,000 kids in the Congo die every day from preventable waterborne illnesses. So Fight for the Forgotten and another group called Water4.org go over and they actually secure the land, they drill water wells, and they uh, train and work with the local Congo uh, administrators of the local Christian college to come in and help the pygmies uh, develop sustainable farming methods. So they can grow things like their own crops and beans, corn, all that kind of stuff, take it to market, sell it, and then have their own economy instead of working for other people. Uh, for Justin, one of his moments that really hit him the hardest was he held a three-month-old pygmy baby in Andibo who died from a, a waterborne illness that would have been prevented by a three-dollar pill. But he went, they gathered up all the resources in this village, walked a day to the local village where the clinic was, the clinic turned him away and said, we don't waste our, our medicine on pygmy animals. And so Justin actually buried the baby with his own hands. Um, and, and it was just rock his world. And that's just one of many ridiculously crazy things that he saw. But since then, he's come back to the States uh, for months at a time. He'll, he'll live between the Congo and the States. And he's gotten back into his com competing in MMA. So he's doing, he had a fight a couple weekends ago. And all of his win bonus money, he donates to the organization. And he fights uh, because he says, if I, if I develop in the sport, then I have a higher platform. I can tell more people about the Pygmies, about my family, and uh, tell their story. So his book just came out. It's called Fight for the Forgotten. And it's an amazing book. It tells his testimony. There's pictures. You can come look at it afterwards. You, you can see the actual uh, huts that he lived in and, and, and some of the stuff that he goes through and, and his Pygmy family, and they're amazing. Well, I've done a couple of fundraisers for him over the years, because I met him here in Charlotte a couple of years ago. And 
we've become friends. One, I'm doing with the jiu-jitsu community where I designed a jiu-jitsu uniform that uh, people can buy and compete in and the proceeds are good to that. But the other one, this is the first one I've done with this one is, I bought an extra copy of his book and inside I did an original drawing of four of the pygmy kids in his village, one of a kind. And so I'm calling this a sketch book. It's a sketch book. And it's a sketch by me, in the book, by him, and I'm auction or I'm raffling this off. So on my website, there's a link, jamsmith.org slash blog. You go in there, there's a link. For every $5 you donate to the cause, um, you'll get your name entered to win this copy. And so the goal is to raise funds. And 80% or 70% of the funds raised are going to go to Justin's organization. The other 30% are going to go to the cycle building. So if you want to help out a really cool cause and maybe win a really awesome book, I read it last week, and it, it'll rock your world. Uh, reading it. So if you're looking for something to give somebody that's super inspiring, if they're into sports, if they're into uh, just these stuff around the world, having their eyes open to things that you never even can imagine, um, check the book out because it's pretty awesome. I'm show it on the camera right here so people on YouTube can see it as well. Um, but anyway, please enter, donate, five bucks, less than the cost of lunch, and you could win this original. I'll have it here if you want to come look at the drawing afterwards and see it as well. Okay. Exodus, since we're talking about freeing slaves, uh, we're in the book of Exodus where we are now at the point in Exodus chapter 25 where God's people who were once enslaved have been brought out into freedom, camped around Mount Sinai, they'll be here for a year. Last week Moses went up onto the mountain and God said, uh, God, God appeared on the mountain in a consuming fire and the people were freaking out and, and Moses went up and some of the elders went up but they couldn't, they could only go so far. Moses could go and some of the, uh, his, the priests, uh, who would become priests later, Aaron, uh, they could go a little further and then at the very top, only Moses could go there. So Mount Sinai was constructed, not constructed, but well, I guess it was constructed, God made it, but it was a mountain where you had all the people around the base of the mountain camped out. Then up the mountain a little ways, the elders of Israel could go, 70 elders. Then up a little ways from that, uh, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and Thor, those guys could go. And then at the very top, only Moses and God. All right? That's an important structural concept to keep in mind visually for the rest of the book of Exodus. Because now we're about to enter into almost a third of the book of Exodus. Almost a third, 13 chapters, is going to be dedicated to a detailed description of the tabernacle and all the things that go on within the tabernacle. And this is where people check out when they're reading the Bible. They're just like, blah, 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 gold poles and rings and acacia wood and, you know, they just glaze over. God is basically, here's what God's doing. God is going to provide a way for Israel to take Mount Sinai with them wherever they go. The tabernacle is a horizontal depiction of the vertical holiness of Mount Sinai. The concentric layers of the tabernacle are going to represent the concentric levels of holiness on Mount Sinai, God's dwelling. And so there's going to be a detailed description of this over the next number of chapters. Uh, there's going to be a short interlude in between with the golden calf incident, and then there's going to be another detailed description of them actually building. So it's like this double uh, emphasis on the details. The whole section of, of here to chapter 31, six chapters, is going to be, here's what I want you to build. Then there's going to be a golden calf incident, which is going to seemingly throw everything off the rails completely. But then God's going to, through His grace, restore His relationship with the people 
and then there's going to be more chapters of them actually building the things that God told them to build in this section. So it's this, it's this diptych, uh, two-part presentation of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a weird word anyway. We don't really use it. In Hebrew, it's mishkan, the mishkan. Mishkan just means tent or dwelling. It's a, the verb shikan, which means to dwell. And so the mishkan is the dwelling. It's a participle, dwelling, the dwelling of God. So they're going to build this dwelling of God. And here's the key. God's going to show them. He's going to show Moses the pattern. He's going to say, Moses is up here on, uh, with God on the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days, 40 nights. And God's showing him the pattern that he wants him to build. He's, he, there, there's, there's a, a specific way. He's going to show it to Moses. Moses is coming down and telling it to the people and they're writing it down later. And then it makes that's what becomes the book of Exodus. So Exodus is not, this section of the description of the tabernacle is not so that we can reconstruct it. These aren't building plans. There are a lot of measurements, but there's a lot of stuff that, that we, if you try to reconstruct the tabernacle, if you look at reconstructions that people have done, they're all different. I mean, they get the basic measurements right, the basic structure right, but when it comes down to the details in some things, there's not a lot of detail given. And in some other things, there's a ton of detail given. And so there's not, it's, you can't, these aren't blueprints, in other words. It's a description because one commentator said it's like this section is giving Israel before and after the building of the tabernacle and after when Israel was, the temple was destroyed and they were in exile in Babylon, these chapters provided a way for them to construct a tabernacle in their minds so they could visualize and they could see how God was intending for Israel in the covenant with him to worship and relate to him. This is how God wants the people of this covenant that they just made two chapters ago to interact with him at the center of where they are. And when I say center, literally, it's the center. If these fruit cups here are Israel, and there might even be 12. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Boo. Only 11. Anyway, well, that's works because the, the Levites are in the middle. So... Regardless, though, you would get Israel camped in a square right in the middle, the Panera Tabernacle. Boom. That's what it would be. That's how it would be arranged, their camp. Israel would camp this way. So there would be a ring of the Levites camped around the middle. And then the tribes on the south, the tribes on the east, the tribes on the north, the tribes on the west. Whenever they're ready to march, the tribes on the east would march first. And then south and west and north, and they would march out following the tabernacle, God's moving presence, God's mobile Mount Sinai that could be set up anywhere. Because the heart of it, these, these chapters show that God is wanting to come down off the mountain. In the ancient Near East traditions, the gods lived on the mountains, or that's where he accessed the gods, on the mountains. That's why Israel talks about later in their history, God says, you know, you go and you worship, you, you, he uses pretty explicit language. He says, literally, you spread your legs on every high place in the country. And he's describing Israel as an adulterer or as a harlot, um, just going and offering herself to everyone. But he says on the high places, because that's where you would go and worship the fertility gods in Canaan. You think of the gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon, where do they live? Mount Olympus. You think of the, even in Hindu mythology, the, the mountain that's the navel of the earth, I think it's in Nepal. Um, I forgot the name of it, but all of these mountains are where the gods live. 
What, what did they do back in Genesis, those of you that were here? They built what? A tower with its height in the heavens to reach up to become like the gods. And God laughs at it, comes down and confuses them. And, and the project's abandoned. So the idea before this time was that God is up there, we're down here, and we got to do whatever we can to reach him or to get his attention. Or to get him, her, them, whoever we're worshiping, to come and act on our behalf. And Exodus is all about how God comes down to actually dwell with his people. He doesn't direct them from afar. Now, yes, God is still omniscient. God is still omnipotent. He's still omnipresent. All the omnis are still going on. But while he is the God of all creation, at the same time, he is dwelling in a specific localized manner, in a tangible way, among his people. So he's both... Um, He's not the word, he's, he's, that's ah, on the tip of my tongue, I need a thesaurus. Anyway, he's real close, <laughs> there's a theological term for that, and he's also fills the heavens, both, at the same time. So yes, the Israelites would know that uh, heaven is, you know, heaven is, your throne on earth is your footstool, you know, the whole heavens can't contain the glory of God, all of that stuff's true, but yet, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, that's where you come and dwell. There's this, there's this dual understanding that God can do both. And we've seen it in Genesis. God could be God. He could also be the man who appears with the two other men and talks to Abraham. And then goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah and, and interacts with Lot and his family. God can do both. He can be the God of the universe and he can be in the burning bush. He can be the God of the universe and he can be the pillar of the pillar of fire. He can do both. That's the theology of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. But in Exodus, this section, after the covenant's been ratified, after it's been accepted, now God is moving into the phase where he is going to prepare to dwell, literally dwell, Mishkan, tabernacle, among his people in their very presence. However, here's the paradox. God is holy. Humans are not. God is holy, humans are common. God is holy, humans are profane. So God, because of human sake, God has to put buffers in place. He has to build in a safety system so that his, um, his, his complete and, and, and consuming holiness doesn't consume and destroy the very people he wants to dwell among. This is, a, this is a theoretical problem, theologically speaking, that Exodus is going to answer through this structure in these pages. Exodus is going to answer that. How can a holy God dwell among an unholy people? Well, God will show us how. And it's going to do it in a way that creates an object lesson, a visual, uh, like we talked about last week, like a, like, a, like a children's sermon time, story time, where you get the kids around and you show them a little picture of something, and that teaches them a lesson. Well, that's what God's doing with the tabernacle. He's going to be teaching them visual object lessons about who he is and who they are for the next 13 chapters or so. And it's going to ingrain in them, and, and it's going to be with them for the rest of their time under this covenant which as we know looking back is, is until the New Testament arrived. So there's also in this section, and I say this section because we're going to be in like 25 through 31, in this section there's this really cool theme that goes unrecognized by most people when they read it. 
most people. Scholars all pick it up because it's clear if you study the book, but just average readers, we just miss it. The tabernacle details, the construction plans that God is saying to do in, in specific ways mirror the creation account of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There are a number of details in which you, you see that the author here, Moses, when he's writing this down and compiling it, it parallels the creation events in a number of specific ways. In creation, in Genesis 1, there were seven divine creation speech acts where it says, and God said, and then something was created. In this section, chapters 25 through 31, there's going to be seven specific creation acts where it says, and the Lord said to Moses, and then something is to be built. So there's a little symbolism uh, parallel there. There is, um, I'll give you the references as we come to them. You don't have to worry about them now because we'll see them in the coming weeks. There's mention of things like in the creation when, when, the, when, when Eden, the garden was mentioned, there's specific mention of gold and precious jewels, precious stones. And in the tabernacle when it's created, there's a specific emphasis on the gold and the precious jewels and the precious stones that are gonna be embedded in it. Um, there are, when God drove man and woman out of the garden, at the entrance he placed a cherubim, a cherub, cherubim is plural, a cherub, a flaming, a, a, a fiery messenger warrior thing, not a fat baby with wings, not what we think of as a cherub, but a warrior with a flaming sword. That was placed between the garden entrance and God's, and, and Adam and Eve on the outside. Well, in the tabernacle, woven into the curtain that's going to separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle, it's going to say, put cherubim into the design there. So again, it's, it's harkening back to Eden imagery and the, the creation itself. Um, there's going to, the creation account in Genesis starts with these seven acts, and then it ends with a celebration of the Sabbath and the importance of the Sabbath. Well, at the end of this section in 31, when Moses is given all of these commands, the last one is going to be Sabbath keeping. And now that this is built, you're to keep the Sabbath. So again, reflecting the creation account. Um, there's in, in Genesis, there's the mention of the trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. Well, right inside the tabernacle, there's going to be this description of this gold tree. Now, we know of it as the menorah or the lampstand. But when we read the description, you'll see it's a tree. It's patterned like an almond tree. And, it, and so the imagery of there is of a tree that bears fruit or that buds, that gives forth almonds. So there's a number of these resonances. The, the biggest one to me is in the beginning, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters of chaos. And then it was the spirit that does the creating. God speaks his word. Creation comes forth, and it's all being done in, in, because of the Spirit of God hovering over creation and doing this stuff. Well, in the tabernacle, at the end of this section, God's going to tell Moses, hey, you know who's going to build this for you? Two guys, a guy named Bezalel and a guy named Holiah. And I am going to fill them with my spirit so that they can work the crafts needed to create this thing. Even in the tabernacle is done by the Spirit of God. In this section, uh, ancient Jewish commentator Josephus, who was a little after the time of Jesus, he specifically in his antiquities, he said that the, the tabernacle was every element in it symbolized something in the universe, in the created order, in the realms, the concentric realms of holiness leading towards the Holy of Holies, which is the very presence of God himself. 
So there's all of this imagery, and the Christians in, over the years ended up reading into it all kinds of stuff about Jesus. And they read the book of Hebrews, and they talk about the, the tabernacle being a shadow of what was to come, and about Jesus entering into the Holy of Holies, not the one built with human hands, but the one in heaven itself, to offer the blood of the atonement. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews uses Exodus imagery to describe the gospel. And it's just saying, Jesus did this, but on the real, rather than the earthly shadow version. So again, that's why, like I said last week, you can't fully appreciate and understand the Gospels without an understanding of Exodus and without an understanding of the tabernacle. It will play such a crucial part. John, John's Gospel, the beginning of John's Gospel, he says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He goes on to talk about everything being created through the Word, nothing uh, unseen, nothing seen was created. Uh, and then he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And it's the exact Greek wording of all of this, the dwelling, the tabernacling, the, I think it's skenao in Greek, but it's the equivalent of the Hebrew word mishkan. It's the theology of the Exodus is what the gospel is. The gospel is God stepping down into human history and dwelling among his people. And in Exodus, he's doing it at a corporate level that's like an image or a symbol. And in the gospel, he actually does it for real, literally. And the gospels are full of that, how, how God literally does what the Old Testament foreshadowed corporately in the people of Israel. That's a whole course in and of itself that you can take uh, and study because it's fascinating. But we are going to look at this section. I'm going to read through, and I just want you to listen to the descriptions of these things. Chapter 25, verse 1, and this is the first of the Lord said sayings. The next one won't come until chapter 30. Uh, but this first big chunk of creation material. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. Now, when they were in Israel, I mean, when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh, Pharaoh didn't say, bring me as many bricks as your heart prompts you to bring. Pharaoh said, you make as many bricks as I tell you when you're building my house. God here is going to say, he's going to invite them. They're no longer serving Pharaoh, worshiping Pharaoh by slaving and building. They're invited to now serve slash worship Yahweh. And, and it's a free giving. It's a free serving, free worshiping not a forced brick building. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And fine linen. Goat hair. Ram skins dyed red. And hides of sea cows. Or your translation might say dugongs. Or it might say porpoise skins. Or it might say badger skins. It's because they don't really know. That's the honest answer. You don't really know what animal skin this is describing. However, it's, it's probably not a badger. It's probably aquatic animal because it's going to be a waterproofing material in the tabernacle. So that's why most say corpus or dugong or some even they say manatee skins. Or so, I don't know. Uh, sea cows is what this says. So that stuff. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breast feet. Now all of those things are going to be described later. This is just telling up front, these are the things that we're going to build here. Verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me, or a tabernacle, or, or this, this place where I'm going to live, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. 
So there's this whole idea of the I will dwell among them. That's going to be a promise that's going to immediately come threatened in chapter 32 with the golden calf incident. They're going to, they're going to almost completely blow this chance for God to dwell among them. But we're not at that part yet. So, first section, let's talk about the ark here. Have them make a chest, or an ark, or a coffin, or a little box of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits long, which is about three and a half feet. A cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Uh, we've, I don't know if we've mentioned here or not, but a cubit is from your elbow to your fingertip, roughly, give or take. Now, what's the problem with that? We all have different size elbows and fingertips. So, it was this sort of exact measurement that the ancient world used, and there was a standard cubit in Israel. But when you're thinking, when you read cubit, just think of roughly that, and that to that. When you think of span, think of roughly this to this, all right, or this to this. That's what cubits and spans are. So when you're reading that, unless you're reading an English translation that goes ahead and does the, um, the calculation for you and puts it into standard, have them make a chestification with verse 11, overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side, two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put it in, put in the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. So, big thing, this ark is always to be ready to be moved. This is an ark on the go. The poles, the carrying poles that the priests are going to carry, one on each side. Just think of like the movies where somebody's carrying a king or a queen and a palanquin and you have the servants walking and holding That's what it is. And it says, don't take the poles out. Leave them in. Even when you set the tabernacle up. Why? Because I'm a God who comes and goes as I pleases. And I may say, hey, it's time to go. It's time to move. Pack up. Let's go. Portable Mount Sinai. Verse 17, make an atonement cover. Some of your translations may say mercy seed or something similar to that. Um, it's just an atonement, but it's just a cover where atonement happens. That's literally what it's talking about. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark, and they'll put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. And the testimony is the tablets, the stone, the stone tablets that will have all of this written on it. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. This is where God's saying, this is going to be my throne. This is going to be my base of operations. This is going to be where I come and dwell and meet with you. This is going to be at the very center of the Holy of Holies, the ark. This is what Indiana Jones finds, and their faces get melted off when they open it. That's what he's talking about. And the depiction in the movie is actually pretty good. The two angels with their wings kind of bowing over each other, they are representing the throne or the footstool of God. Was two cherub, not fat babies. Um, verse 23 now, make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make around it a rim, a hand breadth, it's this wide, wide, and put a gold molding on the rim. 
Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim and hold the poles used to carry the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and carry the table with them. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to me, to be before me at all times. So now, inside this tabernacle structure, there's going to be the Ark of the Covenant, and then there's going to be this thing, this table. And it too will be a portable table, that's what the poles and the rings are for. And on this table are going to be the, the meal to God, the fellowship meal, the bread of the presence, symbolizing God having communion with his people, eating a meal with his people. That's what you did when you worshiped and made a covenant, you would enjoy a meal together. We already saw that in the last chapter. Now God's saying this is going to be forever symbolized that the heart of where you worship me is going to be the fact that we are sharing a meal. Right? Not a little shot glass of grape juice and a little thing of bread. But this was a meal. This was loaves of bread and the implements of, of eating and drinking. It was to symbolize an actual meal. We've talked about that here as we eat and study the Bible. We're very much keeping in a very, very, very long tradition of God's people. Sharing a meal talking about the things of God together in community, built into the structure of the tabernacle. Verse 31, make a lampstand of pure gold and hammer it out, basin shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand there would be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, the second bud under the second pair, the third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and the branches shall all be one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps and set them up so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A tallet of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. So this is going to be opposite of where that table with the presence meal is going to be. Opposite to that, there's going to be this almond tree. And it's going to be in where its branches are coming out, and it's budding, and it's flowering, and those are actually going to be little oil lamps. So there's going to be a tree, and it's going to be shining the light inside this structure called the tabernacle. Verse 20, or chapter 26, we'll pick up next week because we're out of time. So keep that in mind. Let me read this one paragraph before you go because it's awesome. This is um, from, yeah, it's Commentary on Exodus by uh, Terrence Fretheim. He says, just listen to what he says as you think about the setting and the theology of this. He says, talking about the tabernacle, at this small, lonely place in the midst of the chaos of the wilderness, a new creation comes into being. In the midst of disorder, there is order. The tabernacle is the world order as God intended, writ small in Israel. The priests of the sanctuary going about their appointed courses is like everything in creation performing its liturgical service, the sun, the trees, human beings. The people of Israel carefully encamped around the tabernacle in their midst constitutes the beginnings of God's bringing creation back to what it was originally intended to be. The tabernacle is a realization of God's created order in history. Both reflect the glory of God in their midst. Moreover, this microcosm of creation is the beginning of a macrocosmic effort on God's part. In and through this people, God is on the move to a new creation for all. 
God's presence in the tabernacle is a statement about God's intended presence in the entire world. The glory manifest there is to stream out into the larger world. The shining of Moses' face in the wake of the experience of the divine glory is to become characteristic of Israel as a whole, irradiating out into the larger world of those glorious effects of God's dwelling among Israel. As a kingdom of priests, they have a role of mediating this glory to the entire cosmos. Why? Because Genesis chapter 12, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So from beginning to end, Israel was an evangelistic people with an evangelistic mission, and the tabernacle itself is part of that. Now go back to work because you're late.